0: In Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7, what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. This is the very word of God.
1: So the book of Romans is about the righteousness of God, explaining why we need a ransom, why it had to be Jesus Christ, how the birth that we've already started celebrating this month, the life and death of Jesus demonstrate the righteousness of God and set us free from the bondage, the guilt, and power of sin. And all of this is done through the work of the Holy Spirit. So Romans is a commentary on the need for the Advent. As Ben mentioned last week, uh, chapter 7 is a technically difficult passage uh, for us to work through. In fact, the closer you examine our passage today, the closer you kind of try to get into it verse by verse... The more difficult it seems to interpret. And so uh, I turn to commentaries. And you find that commentaries, the commentators have entered into really lengthy, lengthy debates on what is meant by the passage that we just read. In fact, they, they debate for pages and pages on single words within our passage. And I, I hope this morning to, to point out some of those difficulties, um, explain why we need to land where we do in our interpretation, because without some of that background, um, it's really hard to get to the true point of what Paul is saying by these words. And some of us, as we read that, may not have any clue as to why there would be such deep arguments on what was said but uh, alas, that's our, our goal this morning, is to, to work through um, the passage and come to the, the conclusion that we, like Paul, um, need to see the condition of our hearts, that we need to recognize our sin for what it is, our condition, and in doing so, begin to own our own sin. Everybody got that out of our passage this morning, Right? No? Okay, we'll We'll see how we get there. Okay, so a little bit of context. Up through chapter five, Paul has made a case for justification of the ungodly. We saw him go back and forth between Jew and Gentile, making everyone recognize that we are not righteous. But by grace, through faith alone, apart from the works of the law, he establishes this argument that because of what Jesus has done, by being the suffering servant of God the Father, coming, living a righteous life to portray the righteousness of God and then his death and resurrection that we can have peace apart from works of the law. In fact, in Romans 4, 5, he said it this way, but the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's the place we need to get to, the place where our faith is credited as righteousness. So at the, end of chapter five, at the end of chapter five, Paul begins to address some counter arguments to this grace by faith message that he has laid out to the Romans. And he, he knows that people are going to hear of this extravagant grace and they're going to oppose it. He, he begins with the, the question of, well, if, if the ungodly are declared righteous purely by grace, then doesn't that open up the door for lawlessness? And then he, he proceeds through uh, a progressive set of arguments until he gets to uh, the place where he knows that it's going to be misconstrued. What he says is going to be taken out of context and people are going to say, well, if we extrapolate this out, then the law itself is even sin. And he says, by no means is that the case. He doesn't want to compromise the holiness of the law or the Torah. And this is where we are in chapter seven. Paul defending the gospel from the charge that it contradicts the Torah and is even because of that inferior to Old Testament revelation. So that's our context. That's where we've come to today. Now, let's look at what is so controversial in our passage today. There is some terminology of life and death, and then there's this pronoun, I. We probably read through that this morning, and you just assumed that Paul meant I when he says I have done these things. But at lengthy debate, Many have argued that it couldn't be Paul because if you look at a chronological order of when the law came, how could Paul ever have been alive before the law? So this has led people to believe that I actually refers to Adam, that he's speaking metaphorically and it means Adam or even Israel. Um, And so when when we begin to dig into this, there is actually no less than like seven major interpretations of what the pronoun I can mean here in chapter seven. Um, The three broad areas of that interpretation fall into those categories, either Adam, Israel as a nation, or Paul, and then subcategories of that in time, of when it would be applying to each of these groups. And all of that comes from verse nine, when he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So the question is, who can I be if there was a time that I was alive prior to the law? Okay. I'm gonna propose, and rather than like, give you like 30 pages of commentary. I'm gonna to try to distill this down and just kind of, kind of propose what I think we should get and, uh, and then kind of wrap that into the context. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna put out there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna propose that Paul's speaking of himself here as he's looking back on his pre-Christian life retrospectively, okay? That Paul is referring to the law imposing or impinging upon his consciousness, a time when he had heard the law, but it didn't impose upon him. And that would be the moment that he died. So uh, think about it like this. When someone is young or even not so young and we are given moral instruction, it doesn't mean that you understand the meaning of that moral instruction. instruction. I can teach my five or six-year-old or my toddler, what is right or wrong. But that doesn't mean that they understand what is right and wrong by that instruction. It's just a rule. Much less like what the sanctity of the instruction means in this case, or the consequences of such instruction. Now, this type of interpretation, working from that framework, fits with Paul's literary style really, really well. And I'm gonna point out some of the ways that that's the case. So if we're looking from literary style and Paul's talking about himself, then right now he's using a past tense here in our passage. And then in the next few verses through uh, 14 through 25, he's gonna move into like a present tense. And then in chapter eight, he's gonna jump back to a past tense. Paul does this frequently in his writings, in many of the letters. Okay, okay. Uh, And not only that, but uh, Paul uses himself as an example a multitude of times throughout his letters. So within literary style, this fits. Um, But how is it that Paul can say in verse nine, I was once alive apart from the law when he elsewhere clearly states that we are dead apart from Christ. So how could he say I'm alive? I was alive The law was there, I was alive, but that be before um, he had met Christ. This is the the question. But if we look at the context of the verb, um, it's actually the verb, I was living, and we look at that context and think about the fact that it not merely refers to physical life, but it functions as a contrast or like an antonym to the verb that he uses next, which is really where his emphasis is. And that is that it, the law proved to be death in verse 10. So he's using this, this wording to make a very strong point. Um, life and death here do not have their full theological meaning. We can think about life and death in Christ and what that means in its full theological context. But, but Paul's deviating for just a moment to make another point. They're, they're just, he's using them as antonyms to get to a stronger meaning. And he uses very similar language in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, through the law, I died to the law in order that I might live to God. Twice already in Romans, in chapters 4, verse 15, and in 5, 13 through 14, Paul has distinguished between sin without the law and sin committed in violation to the law. Back in his condemnation of both the Jew and the Gentile. And he, he here begins to talk about specific revealed commandments. The intention now is probably to distinguish between disobedience to a command revealed by God as more serious and even rebellious and be more overt and blatant than when one violates the law that, and it has not been yet made known. Now, Paul therefore deduces that the commandment was given to produce life as it expressed God's will, but for man, uh, will for man, but it employed it's employed by sin for sin's purpose of condemning man. So the advent of the commandment then precipitated his rebellion. It was present. but when he consciously and deliberately disobeyed what was prohibited, what was revealed by God led to his spiritual death and his specifically his recognition of his spiritual death. Paul didn't get it. There was a time when he, he had heard the law, he knew what it meant, and he's gonna use coveting as a specific example, but he, he didn't recognize that that coveting was leading to his death. He thought that the avoidance of coveting was leading to his life. Heady intellectual stuff, right? Like, that's a lot of Bible talk. Lots of commentary talk. And at this point, I would like to make a confession. There was a time in my spiritual life when I would have eaten this stuff up. Like, my quiet times were lengthy, I'd break out the commentaries have them all laid out there, get my parallel Bible going on, study, 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 look at all the debates, look at the, the intellectual debates and, and think that I was really getting something out of it. Like that was my primary theme. Like I, I wanted to be a scholar of the Bible. And that was, that was where I set at the time I thought my heart, And there are some here this morning that love this kind of stuff. Like, you could probably hear me preach and and think, wow, like this is like intellectually stimulating stuff. And I thought, like many of you do, that in seeking all of the doctrine and the theology that I was growing spiritually. I would have been content hearing all of that stuff and then going to lunch, like great sermon. That was really quick, 10 minutes. Like hearing all that stuff and then going to lunch and later today or later this week, getting together with my missional family, and going through the debate of, well, let's look at all the other ones. He said, this is the one we should follow, but what are people saying? And, and having that debate, critiquing which interpretation was picked to be sent from the pulpit. You know, critiquing the way it was delivered. That's where my heart was. But... It seems like these days, that's become a lot harder for me. I think it's, it's a lot harder for me to sit down with the, the commentary and read 30, 60 pages over five verses. Because by God's grace, I don't get so much out of just picking away the syntax and the context um, there was a time that I would have just missed the forest for the trees. I would have thought that's what this passage was about. Paul's breaking down an argument against using the law, saying it's sin. I'd have been content with it. But um, these days it's a little different. Like when I come to the word, I guess I'm more emotional than I was in my younger days, but like I really want to come to the word and find where it engages my heart. I wanna come to it and I wanna find precisely within all of those really good things, within the context and within the debates, what's the truth, but like how, how is God going to use that to change me? How do all those arguments all that background stuff that we need to know, how does that actually impact me? And I think that's exactly why Paul brings up this point. I think that's exactly why he chooses the commandment that he does of coveting to make his point. There are three things we really need to see Um, from this passage as a church and individually. So if you want points, here they are. Halfway in, just now getting to the points. God is good, therefore his revealed law is good. Where our hearts stand in relationship to that law? And last, we need to see that sin is a liar. Okay. I'm gonna work our passage backwards this morning to kind of show you these things. So in verse 12, that's true. That's absolutely true, Clyde. Verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul has previously established that God is righteous. He spent the first three chapters of the book establishing God's righteousness. God's law is derived from him and it bears the unmistakable mark of its giver. That's how Paul can draw the conclusion that the law is good and righteous because a good and righteous God delivered it. God's commandments are just in that they require just conduct among men. And in that, being merciful and not burdensome, God has used it to bear witness to his justice. It's good, God's law is good and that they are intended for mankind's benefit. It wasn't a law imposed to give burden, but to give benefit. God is holy, righteous, and good. And we see this in the law that he gave because the law increases our trespass. Because he says, but where sin is increased, grace abounds and where sin once reigned in death, grace also now reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So is the law sin? By no means is the law sin. The law's good. And Paul says, I'm gonna give you an example of how the law is so good. But we need to ask our question, how does the law help us know our sinful condition? Now, I used some specific term there, our sinful condition, not just our sin, but who we are. Paul takes the last of the Ten Commandments, the prohibition against coveting, you shall not covet, and he uses it as an illustration. Why that one? It's because it's the commandment that most clearly deals with the desire of the heart. It, the others look at outward actions, external behaviors, directly with those. Now, they assume the desire behind it. Obviously, they, they assume the desire behind what they're warning against, but the warning against coveting directly addresses the desire of our hearts. It shows that the transgression does not only occur with an external action, but it is begins here inside us. We know this is truth. We know that that this is the point of the law. Jesus said so in his teachings, right? You heard it say, don't kill. But if you've hated, you've committed murder. This is what Paul is bringing out. He's looking at the, the, the one commandment that you couldn't misread in that way. So while someone may indeed experience covetousness, even though they don't know the 10th commandment. It's only in light of the 10th commandment that we can recognize that our coveting is what it is. Like you can covet. We all do that, right? We've all coveted. We've wanted this or that. But when, when we saw the law for what it was, it opened our eyes it it made us recognize that those things that we were seeking over God are sin so the focus on covenant is intentional it uncovers the root not just the sin but the root and that is our human desire it's our heart The law doesn't make us sin. We just sin. The law lets us see it. The commandment on not coveting tells us that our own desires are not the measure of right and wrong. That our own desires are not the measure of good or bad. That our own desires are not the measure of true and false. It lets us see that God is the measure of right and wrong. That God is the measure of true and false. So the law comes in and says, there is a standard outside of us and above us, namely God and his revealed will. God is the measure of right and wrong. And God's measure is revealed in a law and it shows us the discrepancy between our unrighteousness and his righteousness. So while the law certainly is not sin, it is true that it has been exploited by sin for sin's purpose. There is a deceiver and he employs sin and its purpose is death. And we see that because of our nature in verse eight that the law exposes sin as sin is And that in that process, sin may flare up all kinds of coveting. Our heart is gonna see the law, it's going to rebel and we're just gonna start to sin even more. So the statement that there's a prohibition against coveting stimulated all kinds of coveting in verse eight. Probably has a meaning something like this, that there is a desire for what is forbidden and it exacerbates that very prohibition. You've probably heard it something like this. Forbidden fruits often taste the sweetest. That's what Paul's getting at here. Not not new. You can look to Proverbs 917 and see this very thing that perverse pleasure, there's this perverse pleasure to carry out what is forbidden. It's the very part and parcel of rebellion. Now, we need to recognize the audience that Paul was writing to. That this statement that that the law propitiates, not, not propitiates, but I'm trying to, trying to think here, but the law makes us sin would have been very, very contradictory to what the Jews thought. The, the Jewish concept was that the law, the, the Torah, curbed sin, that it diminished sin. By following it, you were less sinful. This is the argument that Paul is trying to to fight. But what he says is that we're all sinful by nature, sinful in our hearts, not only in our outward actions. One last point. Sin uses the commandments to deceive us. Sin is fundamentally a liar. It kills by deceit. So what deception does sin use when it comes into contact with the commandments? Look in verse seven. It says, sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me. So what lie? What tricky little half-truth did sin use to, see, to deceive Paul? I think that when sin meets God's commandments, its lie can kind of be boiled down into two basic lies. They're going to sound opposite initially, but they have the same root. On one hand, sin might say, when it meets the law of God, you can't keep these commandments. And if you could, you wouldn't want to. And so there is no hope for you before a holy God. You may as well put it all away, get it out of your head, and just chase whatever pleasure you can get while you're here. The second, on the other hand, sin might say, when it meets the commandments, you can keep these. So muster all your willpower and show yourself as good as the next guy. Get ready for judgment. In other words, sin takes the law, takes it in hand, and he kills us with one of two types of deception. It either offers hopelessness relieved by self-indulgence or it offers hopefulness supported by self-righteousness. One, by telling you that you can't keep it and so you should be hopeless the other by telling you that you can and so you should be hopeful but they're both lies paul was deceived and so 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 are some of us because if i get enough intellectual contentment in the word i'm doing what i'm supposed to as a believer doesn't matter how it impacts my heart. So what is the remedy? Paul has already told us earlier in the letter. We have died to sin and the law, and we are now alive in Christ. We are no longer under law, but are under grace. So we can come into Advent, we can light a candle of hope, not because of the lies that sin is trying to get us to believe, the deceit that it is trying to pull from the law, but purely by grace and a righteous God that allows us to have relationship through faith. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Let us see our condition for what we are. Like Paul, we are prone to sin. When confronted by the righteousness of God revealed in your good holy righteous law we are prone to rebel and sin even more if we see ourselves for who we are we can confess that we can see that seeking to fulfill the law is a is deceitful if we think that it earns us righteousness. Or blowing it off and seeking our own pleasure equally leads to death. Father, we thank you that you are righteous and have not left us in our unrighteous state, but that you have called us into your kingdom by grace through the righteous life, death, and resurrection of our King Jesus. Father, let your church die to sin. Let us die to the law and live to you and your kingdom through the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Amen.